0: going to talk a little, little, little bit this morning about testifying, testimony. It's, um, it's, it's interesting that Acts 22 lands in this, particular, this particular, on this particular Sunday uh, because as we prepare our hearts for the new year, um, I grew up taking part in new year celebrations at our church. Uh, some, some, church some churches call it watch services. Anybody ever heard of that? Anybody? Amen. Amen. And I don't, know, I don't know how your watch service went, but the watch services I grew up attending started roughly about seven, eight-ish, and they would go on to 12, one. We'd have breakfast. People would bring blankets and pillows because you might as well just go ahead and take a nap while you're at it. But there was one particular portion of the watch service that was always special to me, and that was testimony time. The opportunity to testify about all that God had been doing in the life of the believers over the course of the year. And you would hear so, you would hear so many powerful stories about how God was moving in and amongst his church You would hear, you would hear of young people who had came to the faith in that year and, and God had arrested their hearts and turned their affections and their, and their lives over to Jesus. You would hear of, of, of older people who, who had, who had been serving the Lord faithfully for years upon years upon years upon years and just wanted to testify all again of his goodness, all over again of his goodness. You would hear, you would hear the, 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 the drug addict come to faith and, and testify about how God delivered him or her from drugs, alcohol abuse, and substance, other substances, and, and brought them into a saving relationship with Jesus. You would hear about the person that, that had been in church all their lives. And in that particular year, their soul had been awakened to the realities of the gospel, and they began to embrace Jesus Christ for the first time, though they had been in church all their lives. And there was power in those testimonies. There was an affirmation in those testimonies that Jesus Christ was real and moving in and amongst his church. And so I want to talk a little bit about testimony. I want to talk a little bit about testifying it's funny how it all works it's funny how it all comes together right when we think about testifying we think about testifying in the context of of courts not just churches you know you bring witnesses to the stand to to testify on behalf of the defense oftentimes or against the defense to make a case against the defense as to why they're guilty or in fact why they're not guilty but testimony in a gospel sense is an opportunity for us to bear witness about the goodness and mercy of Jesus Christ. It's an opportunity for us to bear witness about the good news of Jesus Christ. And so here in this moment, we find Paul um, in Jerusalem. We know that this is... This is, the, this is the, the, the moment that Paul has been, has been foreshadowing, the moment that Paul has been speaking about, and now it has arrived. Persecution is ramping up against him and his team, and now he is amongst the Jerusalem crowd and preparing to make a defense, preparing to testify concerning the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, testimony is an opportunity to adequately defend the gospel, believe it or not, while connecting the unbeliever to the gospel. So you're defending the gospel when you share or when you witness of of God's goodness in your life. You're defending the gospel. You're speaking to the truth and the veracity of the gospel when you're testifying about God's goodness in your life. And in so doing, you're also connecting the unbeliever to the gospel. So I want to I highlight three points as we walk through this text together. The, the first point is that our gospel witness connects us with the unbeliever. Our gospel witness connects us with those who have yet to believe. Christian witness should establish a connection wherever that connection may exist. Paul goes the, 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 Paul goes the lengths of establishing a connection through his gospel witness. You hear it very early on. The first way he does it is he addresses the crowd as his own. He says in verse 1, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. Brothers and fathers, my people, family, hear the defense that I make before you. He's establishing connection. The second way we hear it is in verse 2 when, in chapter 22 when we hear these words. He addresses them in their language, and in so doing, establishes connection. Listen to verse 2. When they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. Paul was not born in this region, in Jerusalem. He was, in fact, born in Tarsus, as Matt read, Cilicia, Cilicia. So the fact that Paul could speak the language, not only was he not born in this, uh, in this region, but he also did not minister chiefly to this region. In fact, these people would know Paul as a minister and an apostle of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. So he wasn't from the region necessarily, at, at least that's what they were led to believe, and he didn't speak or he, ne- he wasn't necessarily speaking to them because he was speaking primarily to, uh, to Gentiles, although, uh, that being non-Jews. But he begins and he opens his defense and his witness in Hebrew, in the native tongue of the people. He makes connection by speaking their language. The fact that Paul could speak their language, as we, as we see, is what opens their ears to listen. They hear and they say, Wait a second, that's Hebrew. Let's listen and see what this man has to say. Sometimes just a, sometimes, when you're doing Christian evangelism, and sometimes when you're sharing the gospel and when you're witnessing about the, about the goodness of Jesus Christ, just simply speaking the language of the people that you're ministering to can do wonders. Now, there are times where it's not just language, but it goes all the way down to dialect. Dialect is different forms of the same language. You see, folks in New York City can tell somebody is from Vicksburg, Mississippi the moment they open their mouth and vice versa. Our dialects are different. And based on the reality of our dialects, we establish connections. You can be in Washington, D.C. And on, the, and on the metro rail, and somebody can start talking in that southern twang, and you say, well, where, brother, where are you from? Sister, where are you from? And you immediately establish a connection. You sit down with each other, and you, you start having conversations with each other. Why? Because language is an opportunity for us to connect with one another. Amen. And so this is what's happening here in this text is that Paul is speaking their language and immediately their ears are perked to hear the words that he's speaking, amen? But it's not just, it's not just the fact that he is speaking the language but he is speaking the language as one who has experience with the people. See, I'm not talking about speaking a language in order to gain, a, a gain an ear when you don't have really any personal experience with the language itself. This is what I don't mean. I don't mean for you to come up to somebody in the hood and say, hey, brother, when you have no experience or connection to the hood itself. Does that make sense? That becomes offensive. And so Paul's connection to the language of Hebrew is not just him saying, let me just try to speak it in order to gain an ear, but it actually connects him to the people themselves. They hear the language and they hear his heart as well. Are you tracking with that? They say, wait a second, this guy has connection with us. Paul's ability to speak their language says, I'm connected to you. I know your lives. I know your experiences. I know you. But there's another way that Paul connects with the unbelievers here in this crowd. He connects by addressing them with his religious and cultural background. Paul digs into his past to to make a connection with these unbelievers present. He says in verse 3, look with me in verse 3. It says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God. As all of you are this day, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them, I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Paul, in this testimony, wants to start his defense by making it very clear, everything that you're thinking about me and those who are with me, who are now claiming Jesus Christ as Lord, I have thought it too. Everything that you're thinking about me, I have experienced it too. I've been where you are. I know exactly how you feel. I was you at one point in time. Yes, I was born in Tarsus, but I was raised and educated here in this town, in this city, in Jerusalem. I was one of you. I was educated in the, Jew- in the Jewish religious faith. I was educated in his customs. I was educated in his law by the greatest of teachers, Gamaliel. I was educated in accordance to the strictest portions or the strictest manner of the law as a Pharisee. And I was zealous. I was fiery. I was on fire for this thing. Passionate for God. Passionate for his laws. How passionate you act! So passionate that I was going from place to place looking for these blasphemers, otherwise known as Christians, and throwing them in prison and signing off on their death certificates when they would be stoned in the streets. There's a popular saying in the African-American community, and maybe it's popular in your own context, and it's this. Never forget where you came from. It's a saying that's usually shared with someone who, who is on the ladder to success, whose potential is high to be successful in life. And, and, and as they are making their way onto to a more prosperous life, it is often intended as an encouragement to not let the success create an arrogance in them. It causes them to forget their humble beginnings. It causes them to forget the people who made this success or that success possible. It's an effort to help them not forget the people that they are leaving behind as they push forward in success. Well, I think the saying is an appropriate one oftentimes for the Christian life as well. Christians never forget where we've come from. Or to say it another way, Christian, never forget where God has brought you from. Our ability to reach back to our past increases our likelihood for connection with those who remain in the past. Our ability to reach back to who we were increases our likelihood to make connection to the people who don't know Jesus. One of the great failures of the Christian witness in this life is Christians become so far removed from who they used to be that they have no ability to make connection to the people who still are what they used to be. Sit around in our coffee tables, scoffing at the sinless, sinful culture around us. Man, you remember how hard you used to club? Did you forget that? You re- Do you remember how hard you used to go? Scoffing at people committing adultery? Do you remember how many women you used to chase? You remember that? Scoffing at the language. All oh, these people are just so coarse and, oh, oh, I can't believe some of the things they say. Do you remember how potty your mouth was? Are you kidding me? It's when we forget who we are and when we, it's when we forget who we were that we lose the ability to reach the people where they are. One of the important details we often lose as we read through the book of Acts is how much time is passing in between these chapters. We read about Paul's conversion very early on in the book of Acts. So, even though we read, read it very early on, we're reading fast. And so when we get to chapter 22, it almost feels like Paul's just been, you know, saved a couple of years. But by the time you get to chapter 22, Paul's been saved for two decades. He's been saved for 20-plus years, and he hasn't forgot. Are you tracking with that? He still can go back and say, hey, I remember who I was. I remember the things that I did. I remember how harshly I treat, I remember being in the same situation or the same seat as you, thinking the exact same thing that you're thinking right now about Jesus Christ. I remember that, and we should remember that, because as we remember that, we're able to establish a better connection with the people that God has called us to witness to. Let this moment be an example to us also that our past can be used for God's glory in ways we have yet to understand. In fact, your past could be one of the tools that God uses to help someone find their way to him. See, most of you guys, you, live, you have these pasts that, that God saves you from, and you think they're supposed to be buried and lost and forgotten forever. But let me tell you something. There's somebody who needs to hear about your past. There's somebody who needs not just to hear about the Paul who is, but there's somebody who needs to hear about the Paul who was. There's somebody who needs to hear not just about the Brian who is, but there's somebody who needs to hear about the Brian who was. Paul never forgot where the Lord brought him from, and because he didn't, his past becomes a tool for God to use to strengthen his sharing of the gospel. How often are you looking for the moment, church? Brothers and and sisters, how often are you looking for the moment where you can say to someone who does not yet know Jesus, yeah, I know exactly where you're coming from. I know exactly where you're coming from. I thought it was crazy, too. How often are you looking for the moment where you can say, I know exactly how you feel about that? How often are you looking for the moment to say, I know exactly how crazy this sounds from your viewpoint? I know exactly how it feels to be in church your whole life and just going through the motions. I know how that feels. I know how it feels. I know how, all, how new all of this feels. I remember stepping foot in the church for the first time, having never been in the church, having never grew up in the church, and then I stepped in the church and how weird it felt. I, I know exactly how you feel. I know exactly how you feel trying to wrestle with that sin that doesn't seem to want to let go. Man, I got sin in my life that I'm still wrestling with, but there's been some sins that I've won victory over, but man, I know exactly how hard it is because I wrestled so hard trying to see the Lord deliver me from that. So I know exactly how you feel. How often are you looking for those opportunities to share that? Here's the point. In gospel witness, the Lord can and oftentimes will use all of you. Not just the you and the now, but the you. Back then, he will use that you for his glory. He'll use the dialect that you've learned over the years, the dialect, the slang that you may be embarrassed to speak in in public company. He'll use that to make connection with somebody who does speak it. He'll use the customs and the traditions that you've inherited in your life. He'll use your past behaviors. He'll he'll use all of you. The whole story of you has potential to be used for the sake of building a bridge to the gospel. But notice what happens in verse 6. A shift happens. A shift from what used to be to what now is. Paul moves his defense from here's how we are so much alike to here's how we differ from one another. Because Christian witness can't simply be about how we are alike. It has to include how we are different. Which leads to the next point. Our gospel witness separates us from the unbeliever. Our gospel witness connects us to the unbeliever, but our gospel witness separates us from the unbeliever. The very essence of the faith tells us that something in us changes. Scripture tells us that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. At the heart of the gospel is the message that when Jesus saves us, we are forever changed. And in this very important sense, we are no longer like the world. And so in one sense, we are connected, but in another sense, we are separated. And this is where that line is drawn. The line is drawn at Christ-empowered, Holy Spirit-empowered change. Paul captures that in the back half of his testimony as we read And in verse 6 it says, As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And since I cannot see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. Paul's point, I was just like you. I shared your heritage. I shared your zeal and your passion. I shared your customs. I shared your law. I shared your language. I shared your doubts when it came to Jesus and this Christianity thing. I shared your hatred for it. I I shared your passion to persecute those who walked in it. But then something happened. Then something happened. For Paul, this change is layered across several days and and several locations. It's on the road to Damascus, and Jesus arrests him on that road with a blinding light and speaks directly to him, exposing his sin of persecuting the one true living God by persecuting his church. He solidifies to Paul that he is indeed the resurrected Savior, and he sends Paul to Damascus for further instruction. There Paul meets a man, Ananias, and this man, Ananias, is is a man who who begins to work with Paul. But before we even talk about Ananias, let me just make one quick point about a a, a contradiction, quote-unquote, that you see in verse nine. Sometimes when you talk to people that are, um, that are trying to debunk the Bible, they'll bring this particular verse out. And they'll say, hey, in verse nine, it says that the people that were gathered with Paul, that they saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to them. But early on in Paul's testimony, he says that those people, that they, that they, that they didn't hear a voice, I'm sorry, that they, did, that, they, that they didn't see anything, but they heard a voice. So what's the, which one is which? Did they see something, or did they hear something? I'll quote one theologian who gets it perfect, in my opinion. He says, quite possibly, Paul intended here to imply that some sound was heard, but it was impossible for the companions to perceive what the voice said. At any rate, his, um. Um, Paul Paul Hill's, this is another theologian, Paul Hill's observation is appropriate here. Paul intended to make it clear that the experience was his alone, and his companions stood very much on the outside of it. They saw a light, but they did not see uh, Jesus the Lord. They heard a sound, but they did not understand his words. His companions were thus corroborating witnesses, but the experience belonged to Paul. In other words, they saw something, and they heard something. Did they hear Jesus' words specifically? No, that was Paul's experience. Did they see Jesus specifically? No, that was Paul's experience. And so both testimonies that Paul gives us are true. Does that make sense? Just want to give you that tidbit just in case somebody comes along and says, hey, I got something for you today, Christian, right? So you can take that home for free. But verse 12, when you see Ananias, Ananias, it it reads, he's a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, and came to me standing by me and said to me, brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight, and I saw him, and he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to every one of what you have seen and heard, and now why do you wait? Rise. And be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on his name. Paul highlights Anani- Ananias' goodwill with the Jews to strengthen his defense. He says, You know this man, and he's well respected in your community, right? And then he begins to go on and describe what this man means to him and his, his experience of salvation. He says it was this man who declared that Jesus Christ was the righteous one. It was this man who, who, who um who declared that Jesus Christ was anointed by God the Father in accordance to the will of God. It was this man who was the one that bore witness to my baptism and my transformation. It was this man that God affirmed the truth of the words of this man by healing me and bringing sight to my eyes through this man. Paul is saying I was like you. I thought like you. I acted like you. I doubted like you. I persecuted like you. But then something happened. Jesus showed up. and He changed me. See a gospel witness connects to the unbeliever but a gospel witness without a line of separation is an inadequate picture of the gospel. When Jesus comes, we should no longer be the same. Most of our testimonies won't be like Paul's, but they should never be absent of distinction. Do you understand that? Your testimony has a line of distinction that says, yes, I was, but now I am. It has that line, and you must draw it. One old hymn captures the heart of this truth perfectly moving our gospel witness from the bondage of the past without Jesus to the freedom of our present with Jesus. This is the the words of the hymn. You know it well. Shackled by a heavy burden, neath the load of guilt and shame, then the hand of Jesus touched me and I am no longer the same. He touched me. Oh, he touched me. And oh, the joy that floods my soul. Something happened and now I know he touched me and made me whole. As you look over the story of your salvation, what story do you have to tell of Jesus touching? you? How can you testify to what, not just who you were, but what has changed in your life to make you who you are? In what ways is the truth and the veracity of the gospel held up by the change that God has rendered in your life? You know, sometimes the gospel is defended just simply by the change in you. There are some people in your life that know the gospel to be real for no other purpose but you. They're like, I remember who that dude was. I remember who that lady was. She is not the same. Something has happened. Folks, your lives are defenses of the gospel. How many of you can say with Paul, yes, I was a blasphemer, but he touched me. Yes, I was one that was trying to earn my way into heaven with all of my good works and my own righteousness, but he touched me. Yes, I was a drunk. Yes, I was an addict, but he touched me. Yes, I was just going through the motions of religion, attending church, but feeling nothing towards God. But he touched me. I once was, but because of the grace of God, through Christ Jesus, I now am. This is a part of our gospel witness. And so our gospel witness connects to the unbeliever. Our gospel witness separates from the unbeliever. And lastly, our gospel witness offends some unbelievers. As we draw to a close, what we find in the last part of this text is not the ending we might be wishing for, especially in light of Paul's excellent defense of the gospel and his excellent defense of his own life being impacted by that gospel. The train begins to slip off the tracks in verse 22. When you look there with me, it says, up to this word... They listened to him. Up to this word, they listened to him. We'll talk about that word in a second. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Up to this word, they listened, and now they're like, Kill this dude. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out what they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. And the tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Let me share something real quick about gospel witness. Gospel witness is logical and reasonable. It's whimsical and wise. In other words, Paul, Paul is not here, you know, he's not running in without, without thinking, without, without exercising insight, without exercising strategy. So here's this moment where he's about to get beaten. And he pulls this Roman citizen card. He says, wait a second, you guys gonna beat a Roman citizen without 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 due process? And they say, wait a second, I didn't even know you were a Roman citizen. And then they begin to go through the exercise, and, know, and, and Scripture doesn't really articulate how Paul is born into Roman citizenship. Maybe his father is a Roman, uh, Roman citizen. Maybe there's some other means by which he's a Roman citizen. But nevertheless, he is a Roman citizen, and thus he cannot be punished without due process. And so they say, okay, well, hold on. We need to put the, put the pause button on this. But that's just a point to say that even though he is articulating his witness, he is still articulating his witness with logic, and reason, and wisdom, and strategy. Does that make sense? Well, let's talk a little bit about just what actually happened to cause the train to slip so far off the tracks. Where now this man who had a captive audience is being is being um, shouted at and threatened. Paul's ability to speak their language gains him a hearing with the people. And he begins to testify of all God's grace through Christ. And all is going well. And then Paul shares the details of a vision that he had. And that's what happens in verse 17. It says, when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste. Get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and I beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. He said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. I will send you far away to the Gentiles is what lit the match. Hold on, Paul. You telling me that the Gentiles deserve this salvation and we don't deserve this salvation? Children of Abraham born and bred Jewish our God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob we serve the one true and living God you mean to tell me that, that, that the Gentiles deserve this but we don't deserve it? you mean to tell me that this is even true? that Jesus is worthy of our worship sets the match, or sparks the match, sparks the flame. And they go from listening to saying, kill him. Let me share something with you. The gospel carries inherent offenses the gospel is littered with offenses. There's offenses all in the gospel. It's just woven into the gospel fabric. Offense, 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 offense. There's all there's all sorts of opportunities for people to get upset, get mad, get angry and reject it. And so your gospel witness can build connection. Your gospel witness can 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 illustrate a a, a beautiful testimony and a beautiful story about how God has changed you and set you free and delivered you, and yet your gospel can still have people cursing you and saying, get out of my house. The gospel carries an inherent offense or, or inherent offenses. Hear the fact God, that God was saying because they had chosen to reject his son that he was taking the salvation to the Gentiles was deeply offensive. Offensive enough to say, let's kill this dude. And that's the one thing that they latched on. But the gospel, is, the gospel is not only offensive to this crowd. The gospel is offensive to our culture and to, and to our world. The fact that we are declared sinful is offensive to Many. Romans 3 and 23 is offensive. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is offensive. I'm a good dude. I'm a good lady. I mean, I help people out. That should be enough to get me into heaven. The fact that God says that we are sinful and that we don't deserve it is offensive. The fact that God would be just by punishing us with eternal damnation in judgment is offensive. Romans 6 and 23, the scripture says that the wages of sin is death. That is offensive. What do you mean? Just because I commit a couple of sins that I deserve eternal death? That's offensive to many. The fact that there is only one way to eternal life, is offensive to many. Jesus declaring in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man can come to the Father but by me, is offensive to many. The fact that genuine faith requires genuine repentance is offensive to many. Wait a second, so I have, to, I, have to, I have to actually make a turn from what I'm doing to pursue what Christ desires for me is offensive to many. The gospel is filled with offenses. And when you begin to witness of the gospel, you will find yourself having to cross those offenses and people getting angry as you cross them. It's a sad truth about the human condition in our human hearts. But the scripture says in John chapter three, verse 19, that this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest the work should be exposed. Here's the offensive truth about the human condition is that we don't, won't necessarily come to good When good is shown to us, that we won't come to the truth when the truth is shown to us, that we won't come to the light when the light is shown to us because we love ourselves and our works far too much. That we love our autonomy. We love our independence. We love the ability to say, I rule my own life. I do what I want to do. I eat from whatever tree I want to eat. I go where I want to go. I say what I want to say. And God, when it's all said and done, even though I did everything that I wanted to do, I didn't do it that bad, so let me in. And anything else, is offensive to many. And so, folks, when we look at this crowd in Jerusalem, we be careful not to look at them and think, oh, man, what a bunch of jerks. Because oftentimes this is us. This is us. This is who we are. And the true and effective gospel witness will ultimately expose us, and it will expose what we truly love. I remember as I was, it was one moment I had a, a group of brothers that I was walking through scripture with and on, on a routine basis and just kind of discipling. And we were at breakfast and, and, and a gentleman was um, listening in on our, on our meeting and he came to the table and he said, man, I was just listening to some of the things that you guys were talking about. And um, man, I tell you, y'all talking about some heavy stuff. And I was like, yeah, man, you, you more than welcome to sit down and Sit down and hang with us and listen listen to some more. And we happened to be talking about forgiveness that day. And and the gentleman said, Listen, I go to church. You know, I, pay, I pay my offering and my tithes. I give, him, I give, I give the church my money. Um, he said, and I go to church. Um, and he you know went on and on and, and, and shared shared his own story. He said, but listen, you can't tell me that the Lord wants me to forgive white people for what they did to me and he wasn't just talking about white people in the sense of slavery jim crow civil rights you know he was talking about white people in terms of like his present reality and some of, and he, he began to share some of the stories and some of the hardships and and some of the some of the offenses that he had received at the at the at the hands of a of a, of a person of a of, of different skin color he said you can't tell me jesus wants wants uh, wants me to forgive that person those people and I said I 100% can tell you that he does without question and he said well I'm just I just don't I'm, I'm just not I'm not with that kind of, I'm not if that if that's the God that that Jesus is and I I'm just gonna have to find another God he said because you don't understand how much that hurt you, you don't understand how you don't understand the depths of that pain that I that I suffered and I said, I said, I don't necessarily understand the depths of the pain that you suffered, but I've been hurt. I've been lied on. And I've had people that, 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 that I've done nothing to that I can think of treat me very harshly and very cruelly. And I've had to Forgive. I had to extend forgiveness I had to I had to I had to extend that forgiveness I said the reason I had to extend that forgiveness because that's the forgiveness that God extended me is in, in fact he's extended a forgiveness that's greater than that because we have offended a cosmic God eternally infinitely and he has extended infinite grace in return whatever offense that you are that you are harboring that you are holding on to I can guarantee you that you've offended God more and yet Jesus Christ through the blood of Jesus Christ you've been forgiven And all it requires is that you embrace and accept that. I wish I could tell you that that day, the gentleman said, I embrace and I accept that. But he walked away offended, mad, upset. Why? Because forgiveness was his offense. There will be many people that you encounter in your life when you are witnessing and testifying about the goodness and mercy of Jesus Christ that will be offended at the things you say. But saints of God, you have to say what the scripture says. You have to testify to the whole truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ in order to actually be sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because for every person that that, that, that leaves offended, God will in fact bring one that leaves embracing him that leaves celebrating the reality that someone offered him the chance to hear about Jesus. That somebody connected to him by sharing their story of their past, but then somebody said, hey, this is where things change for me. This is where things are different. And somebody shared the offenses, the hardships of the gospel, but instead of them rejecting those, or instead, of reject, instead of them rejecting the, uh, a gospel based on those offenses, they said, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to embrace whatever the Lord has for me because I realize that what he has for me in Jesus Christ is greater than anything I might be offended in, offended by. And so, saints of God, keep testifying. Keep witnessing, keep sharing the gospel of your glorious Savior, Jesus Christ.